0: Machine learning? Is this the panacea for every company with lots of data? Let's hear from some experts and find out what's real and what you need to focus on. Welcome to the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryor. I'm here with Madeline Mihalescu. Mads, as one of the key technical resources in the Georgian Partners Impact team, you talk to all our CTOs on a regular basis.
1: I do indeed, John.
0: And how often do you have to talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence?
1: Well, not every day, but it's been happening more frequently over the past year. I mean, most of our CTOs recognize today that machine learning is becoming an imperative when, when building software products. Um, I would say there is still an execution gap that, that we at Georgian are, are focusing on.
0: Excellent. Then, So for this podcast, who did you talk to
1: and why? I got together with uh, Jeremy Barnes. He's the CEO at datacratic which is a machine learning company out of Montreal. Jeremy is actually a, a good friend of ours, of Georgians, and he has quite a unique perspective on both the technology side of machine learning and the business side. So I figured getting him to share some of his thoughts would be beneficial for both the CTO and the CEO of a software company.
0: That's great. Well, with a space like this, with hype everywhere, I'm looking forward to getting everything cleared up. Let's listen to your conversation.
2: It's, uh, it's good to be here, Mads. And uh, just before we get started, it's, uh, it, I'm happy that the VCs outside of the Valley are taking an interest in machine learning, that we're not leaving all the exciting stuff happen on the other side of the uh, continent or the other side of the border. It's, uh, it's good to be having this conversation.
1: Great, Jeremy. Well, well with, all the, with all the high-end research that happens in Toronto and Montreal, we cannot leave all the interesting business aspects of machine learning to the valley, right?
2: Or all the good people to, uh, to yeah, flee south as well.
1: Correct. All right, Jeremy. So maybe, maybe tell us a bit about yourself and uh, don't skip the fact that you hail from Australia and now live in Montreal and uh, that you're now at your second business in the machine learning space
2: yeah sure so i'm the founder and CEO of Datacratic Uh, and we'll be talking about Datacratic a bit more uh, later on so i won't talk too much about it now Uh, my career has been 15 years doing machine learning i did uh, at the end of my university career i did a thesis uh, on machine learning my final year and that was what set that direction up uh so that was in australia obviously Uh, i then uh, went and co-founded a startup in april of 2000 in the valley which was not the best time to co-found a startup in the valley Uh, we spent a while looking for funding there and i eventually moved to montreal basically for the tax credits it was the only place where the uh, the company could work and that company was a computational linguistics startup but it was Also, one of the kind of early companies to have machine learning as the central uh, technology, uh, the central enabler around what was built. So, the company was disambiguating uh, tweets, uh, search queries, web pages, uh, contextual ads, things like that, and linking them into the context, which was information or entities found in, say, Wikipedia or the other linguistic resources there. And the goal there was to get a semantic understanding of text,
1: and that um, was uh, that was about ten years ago, or eight ten years ago.
2: Yeah, that was longer. That was uh, that was in two thousand that we started that. Okay, that was that was quite a long time ago. Yeah, that was before machine learning was was mainstream at all. Uh, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, you know, that company we ended up employing two of the winners of the Netflix Prize. You know, before they won the Netflix Prize one of the inventors of Amazon's first recommendation algorithm. So we had, we had some good talent that that went through the company and uh, I eventually left the company once the technology was done. Uh, Yeah. We, we had a very, very good technology, especially for the time, but we, we hadn't identified the market for it. And yeah, I considered that my job there was done and spent a year, doing you know, doing uh data science competitions uh looking around for what to do next and I eventually founded datacratic having determined that you know, especially in montreal where where I'm from uh well where I am in fact uh, for family reasons you know, there was there was no job for me that I didn't create myself and so i I founded a second company datacratic and that was in uh, two thousand and ten and I've been here ever since
1: Got it. That's a great background, and it seems you're a veteran of the machine learning space and machine learning applied to business. Maybe let's start a bit with some, some basics, right? So I guess taking a step back, it's quite interesting for me at least to, uh, to talk to companies and investors today and hear the term machine learning quite a lot. in Most conversations um, I'm having, and, and, and even my, my teammates have, uh, and you're probably seeing it as well. I mean, everyone really talks about it. Um, So how do you define machine learning?
2: Machine learning is basically a way of learning models or even programs from data rather than constructing them by hand. So it's a little bit like asking the computer to write a program for you to do something which is very, very complex, where you have some data about what the input is and what the output should be, but you don't have any possible hope of hand-constructing a program to do it, even if you have really good programmers or really good scientists. So from a technical perspective, it's that. From more a business perspective, it's used primarily to identify the relationship between what you know now, like your pixels in a picture or the products that a customer has browsed or something like that and some kind of an outcome that you don't know, like what the number plate of the car is or if the customer will buy something in the next two weeks. And those relationships there, you can use them to automate decision-making or to inform human decision-making processes depending on what the way that those decisions are being made.
1: Interesting. So if you look at the spectrum of... Of associating in- inputs with outputs in a more automated way, right? So this this whole space of pattern recognition. Would you say that all the algorithms from simple logistic regression to more complex deep learning and, and deep neural networks fall under this machine learning umbrella? Or would you would you would you split them?
2: Well, I think that you, you can define machine learning in yeah, in a pretty broad sense under which you're even running a regression in Excel is machine learning, or you you can narrow the definition a little bit more. I think probably a narrow definition is a little bit more useful. Uh, So I would say that machine learning is, it has components of both art and science to it. So the art is about, you know, you take a business problem you have in the real world or some kind of problem you're trying to solve and you map that into the form that a machine learning algorithm can solve. So you map some data and you map some kind of a representation and you map a prediction onto the thing you're actually trying to figure out. The science part is more about using the available algorithms and data and technology platforms to make that solution viable. Um, But importantly, you need to do it with a little bit of rigor to have some confidence that your machine learning system is actually gonna solve the, the problem. So if you're combining the art and the science properly, you you come up with a solution which you can, you know, in some sense you can have certainty, you know, mathematically bounded certainty, but some certainty that under certain conditions, you know, it's solving a problem in an optimal way or a a close to optimal way. Whereas if you're just blindly applying algorithms without thinking about any of those things, you lose the ability to understand, you know, in what context there's solution is optimal or even what problem it's it's solving and it doesn't mean you can't solve problems uh, with you know, simple algorithms applying applied blindly but it does mean that it's much harder to reason about you know what problems that that's not solving and I'd say you know the machine learning involves actually applying some kind of a scientific method to what you're doing and that involves you know, a fair bit of art not just uh, uh, you know an application of algorithms or you know, downloading a toolkit and uh, and applying it to your data file
1: got it. So, from from a business standpoint, why, why why do you think businesses should care? And maybe walk us through one example where uh, where machine learning can solve a problem that um, just writing a piece of software without applying machine learning techniques techniques would not work.
2: Sure, so, and that's something which is really exciting because the number of places in which that's true in which you know, machine learning makes things possible that weren't before is is starting to get very very large uh, yeah, I would say that um if you look at it kind of a, from a macro perspective, what's happening with machine learning at the moment is it's providing a way for uh, you know, for new businesses to Open a new front of uh, competitiveness with the, you know, especially with the larger entrenched businesses there, and then be able to enter uh, more industries there. And a lot of that is, you know, because these, uh, you know, these upstart businesses are able to uh, gain efficiency from using data and uh, using that to apply. Uh, you know, to real business problems. So you know, if you have a look across nearly all industries, that's, uh, that kind of thing is happening. You know, for example, the, uh, if you have a look at the lending industry, the you know, payday lending industry, there are companies now that are much, much smaller and much more nimble that are starting up that are able to offer you know, better rates and have a much more effective business because they're using data. And essentially you know, they're using this extra front which has opened up uh, about you know, about how data is used in uh, you know, to exploit weaknesses that some of the incumbents have and that's allowing them to enter the market and you know, disrupt those industries and that's you know, that's happening all over the place that's happening you know everything from transportation to agriculture to to insurance where you know, larger companies are Having difficulties figuring out their data strategy fast enough to, uh, to say off these new companies that are starting up.
1: Got it. So it's really about starting with that business objective and, and architecting something that uses machine learning with that business objective in mind, including perhaps goals in terms of accuracy in terms of your false positives and false negatives that are, are related to, the, to your business case. I mean in healthcare, you might have different objectives than in, for instance, in advertisement. As an example, is that fair?
2: Exactly. Yeah, you, know, you you might have a very skewed risk in that making a fault, you know, making a wrong decision in one direction will lose you a bit of money, but making a wrong decision decision in the other direction can get you sued. And so, you know, those kinds of things, if you don't find a way to pass them down into the machine learning layer, then you're putting your business at risk by yeah, applying machine learning in, a, in an incorrect manner.
1: If I look at 2015, it truly has been a breakout year and everyone is really super optimistic. I mean, I talk to people in the industry, investors, and even researchers, right? And researchers are by and large pessimistic in nature. So what do you think is real today and what is promise when it comes to machine learning and the applicability of machine learning to business problems?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the it's been quite a ride this year as you say you know a year ago you know when i would talk about what the algorithms we're using or i try to go into a little bit more depth about how we take machine learning to solve a problem people would say to me say hey 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 whoa dr spock you know stop talking about matrices or whatever those things are you know like give it to me in language i can understand <laughs> and now when i talk to someone they say uh, your solution is like so behind the times you didn't even say tense or once so the yeah, you know, the, the language has changed a lot i think that people have decided that machine learning is actually a viable and exciting solution not this uh you know mad scientist type thing that <laughs> yeah exactly for. yeah with respect to your question which is you know, what's real about machine learning and what is there which is you know, still promise or, you know, still unrealized. I mean, certainly the advances we have been around, you know, there are a certain number of set of techniques, you know, in particular techniques called stochastic gradient descent, which are ways of, with sufficient amounts of data, of training, you know, really, really complex models that can emulate some of the human characteristics of perception. And that's what's made these huge advances in image recognition, in speech, in natural language processing, is the sudden realisation that the people who designed neural networks all those years ago were actually right. There just wasn't enough Computational power and enough data to uh, to train them, and you know now we suddenly discovered wow, there's a lot more data, there's a lot more computational power, and these things, you know, what well, these things actually work, and they, yeah, you know, the, the form is very similar to what they were a long long time ago. So it's been the confluence really of these you know, these mathematical techniques and these advances in, in computer architecture and you know, data storage, which have led you know, led to this explosion happening. That being said, the there are a lot of other things which haven't been explored. This is there's a lot of uh, push in that direction of making those kinds of uh, gradient descent algorithms run faster. But there is still a lot, of, still a lot of work to be done with the representational aspect of it. You know, how do you deal with uncertainty in those algorithms? How do you deal with things that have more structure than you can represent in, uh, you know, in a fixed length vector of numbers? Things like that. And you know, I think that the there's still a lot of promise that hasn't been realised in machine learning in the way in which those algorithms are, are applied or, you know, mutated to better match real-world-type situations because, you know, an image is, you know, is a fairly concrete uh, representation, but there are lots of phenomenons in the world that we need to be able to work with which aren't nearly as, as concrete as that or where there's a lot of missing information and, you know, we need to be able to deal with those as well. So I think what we have is a set of foundational building blocks that are very, very powerful that we can use as part of machine learning solutions. But I don't think we've gotten to the point where any problem is trivially solvable with machine learning, even if there is a lot of data available. And that's ignoring entirely the solution of how do you get that data and how do you effectively make a solution that, that leverages it, that's your cost effective and, you know, solves a problem you're trying to solve with.
1: So where do you think complexities lie when it comes to, to applying machine learning to solve a business problem? So I guess the first one is really having that comprehensive data set and assuming that problem is solved. What would be the, the other complexities?
2: I think there are complexities that would probably, you could uh, break it down into two main categories. There are system complexities, uh, which are around the, the, uh, the system and how it interacts with the problem you're solving. And then there are technical complexities, which are about how you make the actual system works. I think the biggest complexities really are in the first category. Uh, because once you have trained a machine learning model, you it's assuming things about the data coming in. The data that you trained it with, in some ways that constrain its, it's view of the world, and that's, it, that constrains you. It expects the data that comes in later on to be exactly the same. Uh, yeah, an example of that is... Uh, you know, I don't know if you've uh, been following Google's work on image classification, but you know, they had a bit of a problem with one of their inception models, which is a you know, really powerful classifier used to do image recognition and, and image labelling. And you know, that, that system, when applied to you know, ordinary people's photos, came out with you know, fairly insulting predictions for those people about you know, what was in the photo itself. And the reason for that was, in the end, that that system didn't have enough data about people in it. It had too much data about animals. You know, the, it just so happened that data set you know, had been collected with less emphasis on, on people. And so you know, according to the system, it was much more likely there would be an animal in a photo than, than a person. And it, it made predictions based on that. Now, that's... Uh, yeah, that's a system-wide complexity because that isn't about the model itself the model did what it was supposed to which was distinguished between different classes of animals but in the context that that model was uh, was deployed yet yeah, there's a much wider set of assumptions which didn't match the assumptions that were in the data so yeah that's an example of a kind of complexity that you get when you start to apply machine learning you know, on, on more real-world problems, and particularly when you start to try to extrapolate from data uh, in order to make you know, broader predictions and the, the set of data which was available in the model.
1: Uh, I was trying to get a sense, what's the current state for ensuring model quality in production and for assessing risk? And then maybe talk a bit about sort of best practices, frameworks, tools, and you, you, you talked a bit about them in the in the in sort of the previous question. Let me expand a bit on that.
2: Yeah, so I think that... There's been a fair bit of interest you know, over the last couple of years about how you put reliable machine learning systems in production and you know, part of what catalyzed that, although you know, obviously the work had started before, was a paper that Google uh, put out which was you know, the title of it was Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt and that made a bunch of interesting points about you know, the, the kinds of uh, uh, issues that you have when you put these systems into production. I've, there are a lot of companies who have been you know, solving those issues individually and I, there's nothing like uh, experience of a rare kind of error which costs you a stack of money, which you kind of start to make sure, okay, I'm never going to have that that kind of uh, error again. So yeah, part of it is... Simply having monitoring tools and you know having appropriate safeguards in place, so that if the algorithms do go wrong, there's a limit to how much damage they can cause. Yes, a lot of our customers use our systems to automatically spend money, for example. And for some of them, it could be you know, six thousand dollars a second. So that's that's a fair bit of money to uh, to be able to spend by accident. And what we do is we work with our customers to say, you know, we have safeguards in our system, but you also need to think about this from a systems perspective, you need to have safeguards in your system in order to guarantee the, the integrity of the entire system because we, we don't control the data that comes in and you, know, you guys don't control the data coming in either. And You, you need to build in safeguards at, at a higher level. So how do you incorporate some of the safeguards? So, you know, a lot of it is is around the design of, of those systems and people, as I get experience, they're starting to have you know, more of an intuitive grasp of what it is that I need to design in the system to, to make it work. You know, things like what is the, you, know, you can analyse a system and say what is the impact if this particular data feed stops working and you can actually do an analysis of that you know, for some uh, real-time bidding system. Mm-hmm. If they stop receiving information about the money spent, they'll start to try and spend more and more, and they'll get into an, a kind of a, and you know their tendency will be try to go towards infinite spend. And you know, in those situations, as you can model it out, you can say, okay, so if I'm not receiving data from this stream, I have to stop doing anything straight away because I don't understand the state of the world anymore.
1: So I'm thinking you mentioned the Google technical debt paper, and and we've you and I had a had a. We've chat before on it, and, and we both we both like the paper. I think it's a great paper, it's a great read. And and one idea that was in that paper is that a small perturbation in the input can can have a dramatic effect on the output. And I think you touched on, on that a bit. And it's really about, if I'm to sort of restate what you just said, it's really about when you when you design the whole system, you have to monitor both the input and the output, uh, especially as as you as you use various tools along the uh, the path to prioritize models uh, is that a fair summary
2: yeah I, I th- yeah this is it's a natural consequence of the fact that the models are becoming more and more powerful. If you have a look at what a simple model looks like it's going to be fairly linear in its response, and so you know you double the input at the most you 're going to get a little bit more than double the output, whereas as you start to add you have more and more Powerful models, you know, they are powerful because they're nonlinear, and so you get to points where you can have a very small change in the input and have a huge change in the output. You know, a big example of that was some other work that came out of Google recently, including from some people uh, who came from the University of Montreal where they were able to adjust images into the you know, individual's image classifier make very small changes to the inputs and make it basically predict whatever they wanted to you know they could take a school bus and they could make it to predict it was anything they wanted to basically by you know something which a human would still recognize as a, as a school bus so yeah you know, that work is it's important because it shows the limits but it, it's especially important because it also shows you the solution and that is that if you need your system to be robust you need to start training your system in an adversarial mode so you need to start actually pushing bad input to it and making sure that the uh you know the result of the system is not too bad so that you you can't if you if you try to make an adversary which is doing its best to trick your system and you make your system robust to that, that's gonna make your system far, far, more, far more robust in any kind of production setting. And you know, that's a really important part of the solution. So I think that you know, with these kinds of techniques that are being used, the, that problem is gonna be something which is, which is solvable. And you know, we're not gonna be in a world where you know, we have these rampant robots which have had you know, wrong input you know, going crazy and destroying the world.
0: Thanks to Mads and Jeremy for a great discussion. It's clear that it's more than data, and it's more than just having a tool, and it comes down to how you put it all together. And we'll be covering that in part two of Mads' interview with Jeremy, and we'll dig into these issues in more depth. Thanks for listening. This is John Pryle for The Impact Podcast.